This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Arthur Snell. We hear a lot these days about global Britain, and it's often pretty hard to know what that means. But one definition might be those strange little bits of empire that still are under the control of the British government, places like the Cayman Islands, the Channel Islands, Gibraltar. And of course, those places these days are associated with offshore finance and interesting types of tax management. It is often said that Britain remains one of the world's leaders in tax injustice. To help us understand more about that, I'm delighted to have Alex Cobham with us of the Tax Justice Network. Alex, welcome to The Bunker. Thanks very much. It's, uh, it's great to be here. Alex, can you just briefly tell us a little bit about the Tax Justice Network and, and what it is you do? Sure. So we're an independent international network set up by my predecessor and and chair, uh, John Christensen, in 2003. Uh, And John had been the the economic advisor to the island of Jersey. So he he knew very well uh, of which he talked. And he brought together a network of people from around the world, lawyers, economists and accountants and others, who could all see how you know very technical uh, discussions around tax internationally often ended up overlooking any kind of social justice concerns you know they get very easily lost in the weeds and we end up arguing about you know the angels on the pinhead of transfer pricing instead of thinking about all of the inequalities that flow from it when our corporate tax rules don't work, for example. So, you know, we operate in a lot of countries around the world. I guess we're kind of at the think tank end of the global movement and our partners at the Global Alliance for Tax Justice are the kind of the mass mobilization uh, organization. So we work very closely with them, uh, engaging with the OECD, the United Nations and national governments to try and really fix these problems of of tax havenry and tax abuse, both by individuals uh, and by by multinational companies. Great. And obviously, you've mentioned their tax havens. Most people would be sort of broadly aware of, of what a tax haven is. What is it that makes Britain special in this regard? Well, this comes down to, and, and tax haven is, is often a term that we kind of think we know what it means, but actually, if you try and define it, it turns out to be quite slippery. And one of the risks in that is that you tend to see stories, newspaper stories about tax havens, always illustrated with a picture of a palm tree and a sunny beach. Yes. It gives you this sense that tax havens are, you know, these little places over there. And actually, you know, what tax havens are about are providing a level of secrecy, financial opacity, 
coupled with the ability to undermine the rules and regulations somewhere else. Now, you can do that on somewhere with a sunny beach and a palm tree, but equally you can do it in the city of London, you can do it in Amsterdam, in Dublin. In fact, most of the uh, the tax haven activity around the world is OECD countries, that's the richest countries in the world. Some of it's their dependent territories. And in the case of the UK, it's a combination of the crown dependencies, so Jersey, Guernsey, the Isle of Man, and the overseas territories like the British Virgin Islands, uh, Cayman and others, with the UK at the heart of it. And that network together makes the UK the biggest single actor, both in terms of providing the sort of financial secrecy that feeds corruption and uh, individual tax evasion, you know, hidden offshore accounts and so on, but also the, the profit-shifting abuses of multinational companies. So whichever way, in a sense, you cut it, whichever way you're looking at tax havens, the UK and its network is the biggest single actor closely followed, depending how you, whether you're looking at, at corporate tax havenry, it's, it's the Netherlands that comes next. Or if you're looking at broader financial secrecy, it's the United States that comes next. So it's, it's these big rich countries predominantly rather than the individual independent, uh, dependent territories. But the UK in all ways is the biggest. And that's kind of, you know, it's a legacy of, of empire, if you like. It's the bit that's left is this use of, UK uh, legal systems and structures around the world, often feeding money into the city of London, maintaining London as a kind of uh, preeminent financial centre, but at the expense of promoting corruption and tax abuse all around the world. These are the, you know, the, the costs that the UK and its network impose on everyone else. That's a really helpful description. But one of the things that has often intrigued me about this is it doesn't seem that it should be inevitable. The fact that we have this legacy of empire and we have um, overseas territories, and basically these tend to be places that, that don't want to be independent countries. They might be too small. They might not you know, geographically be suited to being a tiny independent country. But we're not unique in that regard. You know, France also has a lot of overseas territories. So why is it that our overseas territories are sort of useful in this world of, of tax havens. And for example, in the case of France, that isn't what's happening. The history of the British Empire is kind of closely tied into this. I've, I've written about there being three stages of illicit financial flows in the British Empire. So one was, you know, what we tend to think of as imperial extraction, just, you know, the British Empire, the East India Company, and many other chartered companies going around the world and just taking stuff. And then taking the proceeds of stuff, you know, including using the tax system in India to strip out huge amounts of profit. But stage two, and an academic called uh, Vanessa Ogle has, has written a lot about this, is the stage where the British Empire, you know, from the 1920s perhaps is starting to close down. At the same time, though, it's introducing more serious uh, direct taxation on incomes and profits. And so people who are worried about losing the support of empire to keep hold of their ill-gotten gains in various colonies also don't want to bring it back into the UK because then they'll have to pay tax. So they're looking for other places that are within the, the British Empire, certainly within the, the, the legal um, system that they're familiar with, where they can park these, these assets and income streams without having to pay tax in Britain. And that's when this set of smaller jurisdictions, 
you know, that are not at the forefront of, of looking for independence immediately and so remain within the empire, they become increasingly attractive and start to set themselves up as kind of early tax havens. That's a process that goes over 40, 50 years. And then, you know, this third stage is the one you know that we're in now, really, which is what we could call the tax haven empire stage. My colleague Nick Shackson has, has written about this in his book, Treasure Islands. The UK basically had in the 50s and 60s a kind of internal struggle. On the one hand, worried, you know, including in the Foreign Office and the Treasury, that they might have to pay aid to these, particularly the small islands, for many years, and that that might be a bit expensive for the empire at the same time as the empire is starting to really to really close in, to, to shut down in a sense. The Bank of England is concerned that if you encourage these places to become tax havens, they may come back and bite you. They may undermine Britain's own tax revenues. And so a kind of deal is done whereby all of these places, or a lot of them, are encouraged to go down the route of tax havenry to kind of join in the race to the bottom, to make it easier to have financial secrecy and to, to strip profits from other places, as long as they don't do that to the UK and instead they funnel the money back into the City of London. We don't need to pay them aid. They've got a kind of an alternative development path and it makes the City of London bigger. So, you know, everyone's a winner. Great, right? In the sort of potted history that you gave us, it's easy to see how people within the sort of British bubble, whether it was the British Empire or, or Britain itself, but people or companies would avail themselves of these sort of quirky jurisdictions that came under the British umbrella. But at the moment, you know, these tax havens, the, the majority of their kind of business is coming globally, isn't it? It's Chinese billionaires, it's Russian oligarchs, it's hedge funds based in, in North America. So when did that shift happen? When did this start to become a global industry? That's a great question. And, you know, I think you, you see it as a gradual process, but probably in, you know, again, I'd, I'd make that distinction between the role of multinational companies, which starts to develop kind of more explosively, only really from the 1990s. So, you know, our research on particularly on US uh, headquartered multinationals, where you have better data in general, you can see in the 1990s, the early 90s, only 5% growing to 10% of their global profits are being shifted away from the places where they're really making their money. Roll forward 20 years, and by the 2010s, that has become 25 to 30% of their global profits. So you get this explosion, and it really starts from the 90s when you know companies get more and more focused and, and they're listening to their, their big four um, accounting firm tax advisors. They get more and more focused on shifting profit using intangible assets, you know, putting their, their brand in Bermuda um, or setting up these, these uh, Irish um, structures in order to strip the profits from the places they're really doing business. So that's, it, is, it is particularly from the 90s. But if we're thinking about kind of the other side, particularly the way that individuals and, you know, and businesses, but not these very big multinationals, have used different uh, jurisdictions, including British ones, to, to shift and hide assets and income streams. That's really a development from empire again, you know, in the same way that a British owner of a rubber plantation in what would have been Malaya, say, will have been looking at ways to use different territories to, to to keep hold of that even as independence looms and to try and protect themselves um, to, to keep their ill-gotten gains. 
similarly, the elites in countries that gained independence and those coming to do business there are then looking at the same structures, the same channels, and you get this embedding of a way of doing business to the point that you know it doesn't uh, it doesn't look unnatural in the early 2000s for let's say the Ghanaian government to be doing business with anonymously owned companies from the BVI and from Jersey who suddenly seem to own lots of the the oil fields you know there isn't an automatic reaction to say that's bizarre we should really know who this is because it's kind of been built up over time as a, a sort of a normalization. And again, you know, it is not only, but very particularly the British Empire and its legacies that have put a lot of that, that kind of normalization in place. That doesn't mean it's all our fault, right? But it certainly means there's a, a kind of a responsibility on the UK to think about how, how to unpick this stuff, both for the damage we do to other people, but also the damage that's been done to people in in British dependent territories. You've described this process, for example, where, you know, major multinationals, at one point, they must have been paying corporation tax in the major Western economy where they were based. And that has now shifted to offshore, which effectively means they're not paying any tax or they're paying, you know, minimal tax. That means, you know, governments in whether it's Britain, France, Netherlands, wherever, have a lot less money from from the corporate tax revenues. But of course, the other impact of this is kleptocracy. It's people in countries which have much looser regulatory and judicial systems where basically wholesale theft is happening, whether it's, you know, the Russian privatizations, which sort of strip the, the country bare or, or parts of Africa and, and, you know, hydrocarbon deals and so on. Are you able to sort of put a finger on the scale of the loss? Yeah, we now publish every year what we call the the State of Tax Justice report. And that aims to, to give as good a figure as we can for the losses that each country suffer both to corporate tax abuse and, and individual um, tax evasion, but also the losses that each country imposes on others. And so that's, you know, that's where we get this set of figures that, that you know, we think are a reasonable measure of scale. So overall, and these are, you know, deliberately conservative um, estimates, but overall, um, we find about $427 billion of revenue losses worldwide each year, of which a bit more than half, $245 billion, is due to multinational companies' profit shifting. Now, I should say that is conservative. Um, researchers at the International Monetary Fund, for example, suggest that the losses to corporate profit shifting alone are much bigger than that, about $600 billion. So there's this kind of a range in there. But of that 427, we reckon the, the UK and its dependent territories are responsible for about 100, I think it's 160-something billion. So the, the biggest actor by far, about a third of the, the global tax losses that everybody else suffers purely because of the way that the UK network has has kind of cornered the market in a lot of this stuff. It's a very significant scale of losses and it's primarily on the corporate side, uh, with the exception of the UK network, it is actually mainly richer countries that are doing this. It's the Netherlands that has, you know, at some level, a kind of reasonable statutory rate, but actually when you look at the data, it turns out to be offering 
effective tax rates for multinationals below 5%, often just 1% or 2%. Ireland, the same thing. The headline rate is 12.5%, but actually the rate that US multinationals in particular seem to get when they shift their profits through is very close to zero. Luxembourg, a headline rate of corporate tax in the 20s, 20-something percent, but actually the effective rate when you've got a favourable tax ruling, and of course the tax rulings remain basically secret, often very near 0%. So you've got huge amounts of money, billions and billions of dollars a year. In total, something like $1.3 trillion of profits being shifted, and that's only by the largest multinationals, giving rise to these hundreds of billions of dollars of revenue losses around the world. So we have a, a tax system for multinational companies that is simply unfit for purpose. And it goes back to decisions made by the League of Nations in the 1920s and 1930s, when multinational companies were really just a production facility in a colony and a sales facility in the metropolis and probably nothing else. So much, much simpler animals. And the rules that were put in place were probably okay for that sort of multinational. But as I say, by the 1990s, you have this explosion in the complexity of multinationals in their scale and in the aggression with which they're starting to to shift their profits for tax purposes. And from that point on, the international rules become increasingly unfit for purpose until we hit this point today where the revenue losses, you know, we estimate just to, to put one number on it, every single second one nurse's salary is lost to tax havens, and the majority of that is to the profit-shifting of multinational companies. So the obvious point is what can be done about it. Now, there is a current sort of initiative underway, isn't there, which has been spearheaded by President Biden, which would not tackle all of these issues, but seeks at least to tackle the issue of corporate tax. Can you explain a little bit about that and and the sort of position being taken both by the UK and other major countries? Yeah, so this is this is potentially a really dramatic um, moment. There's a, there's an opportunity here, and it's really in the next two months to make perhaps the biggest change against corporate tax abuse. Um, uh, certainly in, in my lifetime. But there's also quite a large possibility that we let this slip through our fingers. And the UK could have an important role if the government was to get behind this. So what we're talking about is the, the OECD's tax reforms. These began in January 2019 with two main elements to, to negotiate, which if they were done comprehensively, would really be the end of profit shifting. But the negotiations have got very tricky. The first element, pillar one, is about making it much harder to shift profits. So it's about starting to move away from the old arm's length pricing system that's very easy to manipulate towards a system that says your profits should be assessed at the global level and then distributed between the countries where where you make money. So if 10% of your employment and 10% of your sales are in the UK, then 10% of your global profits should be declared in the UK for tax purposes. And, and just to clarify for the listener, at the moment, for example, Amazon, most of the profit it makes in the UK, it pays tax on in Luxembourg at a close to zero rate. 
Yeah, I mean, it, there's, there's sort of always different different multinationals use different places to shift their profit, but the effect is pretty consistent for a yeah. big market like the UK that most of the profit that genuinely arises here ends up being taxed or indeed not taxed somewhere else. And yeah. the UK has been particularly poor at um, preventing that sort of abuse, partly because we're kind of committed ourselves to this this sort of tax haven model. So that's, you know, the UK both loses revenues perhaps as much as 25 billion pounds a year, but also inflicts uh, losses on others by facilitating profit shifting out of them. So we're kind of we're both the bad guys and the losers, which seems like a, a, a pretty bad position. <laughs> it's not a great place to be. Yeah. So that's pillar one. So that's pillar one. That's about making profit shifting more difficult by kind of trying to tie profits or at least some of the profits to the real economic activity. Pillar two is about making profit shifting less attractive. And that's this idea that we can introduce a global minimum corporate tax rate so that imagine you you make your profits in the UK, but then you shift them into the Netherlands and pay very little. The UK would be able to say, well, if those profits have been taxed less than the agreed global minimum, we will basically top up the tax. If we agree a global minimum rate of 21%, let's say, and they're being taxed at 3% in the Netherlands, then the UK could say, well, we'll take the other 18% to top that up so that the incentive to shift it into the Netherlands would basically disappear. So these are the two bits. But as I say, the negotiations have been very difficult. Pillar one has ended up being really very limited, very complex, only looking at a small bit of profit. And no one's very optimistic about what happens there. Pillar two is where the, the, the potential opportunity is. And this is where the Biden administration has come in and said, we think the rate should be 21%. Whereas the OECD before was talking about twelve and a half 12.5% that would, would, you know, it was so, so low, it wouldn't have made much difference. Yeah. At 21%, you're looking at, on our modeling, potentially five or $600 billion of extra revenues each year. And if that's distributed according to where the real activity is, it will give, we reckon, both the rich countries in the OECD, but also lower income countries who tend to suffer worse losses, in fact, um, as a share of their tax revenues, it would give all of them something like 30 to 40% extra in terms of their, their corporate tax revenues. So big benefits, very equally shared if it's done the right way. You and I interacted on Twitter the other day, and I, I expressed the view that this might be the most important thing happening in the world at the moment. If, and if one thinks about, you know, the possibility to change the ways in which, you know, the global financial system operates in terms of tax justice, although it's a technical issue, it, the, the potential impacts are incredible. But I suppose that the, the worrying, perhaps slightly depressing thought is that if you've got Boris Johnson... Uh, who probably doesn't have very strong views on this issue, but, you know, he has very strong views on Boris Johnson. And then, of course, his Chancellor of the Exchequer is Rishi Sunak, a man who worked for a hedge fund that is, uh, I think, I'm right in saying domiciled in the Cayman Islands. There may not be much cause for optimism here. What, if anything, are are the opposition saying about this? I think both some of the right things and not enough you know this this hasn't really kind of cut through and it's odd because you know there is a a very clear position 
from among the opposition parties, I think almost all of them in their manifestos had pretty clear statements about wanting to move in this direction. So it's not that this is new to them in some sense. And, you know, the opportunity is so clear. The public support to end the, the corporate use of tax havens is almost unanimous. I mean, it comes back the most striking numbers in polling and in focus groups. And the government knows this too, because it's, it's true of their supporters as much as anyone. Nobody likes corporate tax abuse and everyone can see the problem. And, you know, add to that the fact that there's so much potential revenue there for the government to fund building back after the pandemic and, and meeting some of the pandemic costs. This should be a complete no brainer. And if the government's not doing it, it's an open door for the opposition. Now, you know, the Labour Party has raised it and has started to kind of to, to put questions in Parliament and so on. But we haven't really seen the kind of public focus on this that I think we need to drive some kind of uh, more positive engagement from the government, or at least have them be be clear that they're not doing it and why they're not doing it. Outside the sort of front benches on either side, are there particular sort of politicians, MPs who are talking about this? And I'm asking that partly because I imagine a lot of our listeners, having heard what you said, will really want to sort of inform themselves and maybe, you know, express their own views uh, on this issue. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you want someone who really knows what they're talking about, then Prem Sicker in the House of Lords, who is, I, I should uh, say, one of our senior advisors, is, you know, an accounting professor who has worked on these issues for literally for decades and is extremely well versed and continually raises these questions in the House of Lords. But again, you know, it doesn't always have, you know, that doesn't always get the profile that it might do. We also see it on the back benches and, you know, people like Margaret Hodge, who've worked on tax um, for a long time, are again very clear on on kind of what this means. And one element of this is getting country-by-country uh, country reporting from multinational companies into the public domain. That's information that basically says, you know, our activity is over here and our profits are over there to allow you to kind of to start holding the companies um, to account. The European Union is about to put through uh, a measure to make that data be required to be published. And the UK has always said it would do it um, as part of a multilateral process. Well, we're out of the EU now, but if, if the EU is doing it, then the UK should be doing it too. And that's one step to making sure that we make progress over time, that we don't allow profit shifting just to continue. But again, the government, you know, that in fact, the legislation for that has already gone through. It went through in 2016. The government has refused to this day to use that legislation simply to give us transparency about the scale of profit shifting by multinationals in the UK. This has to become um, a focus of more political activity. And, you know, I should say our, our good colleagues at Tax Justice UK, along with the Fair Tax Foundation and Tax Watch UK, you know, there is a, a constellation there of civil society actors really leading this push and a church action against uh, a church um, action for tax justice. So lots of organisations now beginning really to, to bang the drum on this. If people want to go and get information from them about the position in the UK, about the position uh, of your own MP, then, you know, that's that's uh, the way to go. There are opportunities to get involved, and it is such a small window now. This really will be decided in effect within the next six weeks or so. Um, so it's it's time. If ever anyone wanted the uh, the opportunity to get involved, it's now. Well, that seems like the perfect point to stop. We'll make sure that uh, some of those uh, organisations that you've mentioned are available in the notes that go with this podcast. 
it just remains for me, Alex, to thank you. You've managed to turn one of the driest subjects imaginable, corporate tax at the global level, into a really fascinating and I think urgent discussion. So thank you for joining us in the bunker. Well, thanks a lot. Listeners, remember there's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Saturday with Start Your Week on Mondays and the main panel show on Tuesdays. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. You can also back the Bunker on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. See you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Arthur Snell. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.